Welcome to the Agree to Disagree show, a show that discusses news, politics, and pop culture with your host, Luigi C. I want to see how many people I can agree to disagree with. We will try to solve life's great mysteries. Why is the sky blue? Why do we lean left or right? Why are we all nuts? Let's start the show. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to episode 46 of the Agree to Disagree show, where we discuss current events, politics, pop culture, and socioeconomic issues. I hope you're all doing well this evening. Uh, let me start off by saying that uh, this evening's uh, episode, or this episode, has been brought to you by our main sponsor, CigarNights.com, where all you cigar aficionados could get all your cigar accessories, especially with you know Christmas just around the corner. So that special cigar smoker in your life cigarnights.com we have all the accessories for all you pros out there and as well audible.com audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs news business and self-development sign up now for your free 30-day trial on clicking on the link in the show notes audibletrial.com backslash agree to disagree so um without further ado i'd like to bring on tonight's guest he is uh, the host of MJ's Progress, Not Perfection podcast. So let's please welcome J.D. Dilks to the show. Let's bring him in the stream yard here. J.D., how you doing, buddy? Hey, how you doing, Luigi? I'm doing great, man. First of all, let me start off the show by saying a huge thank you for being being here. Um, I made I made a promise to my, my listeners and my viewership that uh, this year... I wanted to change up the type of interviews I'm doing and not just talk about um, political politics or, or I wanted to really focus on social social issues that affect us all. And I think that uh, mostly that are, are stigmatized as well. And I, I couldn't think of a better um, discussion to have uh, this evening surrounded around addiction. Then with so, the walking stigma. I'm a walking yeah. stigma. Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. So, uh, and, and I have a few beasts as well to go with that. And you're going to see where we'll, we'll get into it as we have the discussion. It, so um, I'm so happy to to have met you. And uh, so tell us, tell us uh, a little bit of your story, the genesis behind your podcast, why you're doing it, and what is your podcast and your story about? The, the, quick, the quick version of it is I started drinking at 11 um for fun um i started drinking alcoholically at 12 when my first friend died from a hit get hit by a car and i yeah i learned real fast like looking i didn't know this then but looking back i literally said to my best friend hey if we get drunk we're gonna feel better about him dying wow. you know and that's 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 me not processing grief at 12 years old and then that's me at an adolescent at a very crucial age that's now using a substance already to take away a pain so now every time I'm in pain, there's my go-to, right? And I didn't know this then. I learned this at 31 years old because at 22, alcohol stopped working for me. I went so hard at 21, you know, and I was never DUI'd. I grew up in South Jersey, man, right outside of Philly. You, you know, my town was one square mile. You could walk everywhere. There's mm -hmm. four bars in our town. You could walk to all of them, you know, and still walk home. So, like, I was never getting in trouble for my drinking because I was always being responsible. I was never drinking and driving. So like, but 22, I was so done with drinking. It wasn't working anymore. Like 
I, it's so funny because, you know, you're from Canada and um, I can, this is in October, 2008 is when I got into pills instead of drinking. And, um, and it's right around the time that the Phillies won the world series, mm-hmm. which is important to me because the first time I ever cried watching sports was because Joe Carter hit a home run in 1993 <laughs> in game six. And I was seven years old and I cried my little eyes out. Uh, that should stay with me, man. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, years I, later. I, I'm not a Blue Jays fan, but I am a Expos fan, ex-Expos fan. Obviously. I've been there. I've been to Olympic Stadium. I've seen a game at Olympic Stadium wow. back in 95 on a road trip with my family. I grew up with a you know very close family. We're still close to this day. Awesome. My parents together 40 years coming up on, you know what Amazing. I mean? Amazing. And they're you know very happy, you know, and they're the epitome of what you want in out of a out of a parent or a relationship, and you know. The way they communicate and all that kind of stuff, too. So, like, I, I was very fortunate. Oldest of three, my brother, I was just the best man at his wedding last month. My sister is awesome. nine years younger, one of my best friends, and I trust her telling her everything. Um, but 22, I found pills, and I, I was a functioning, you know, pill addict for nine and a half years. I, I used Roxycodone 30 milligram, you know, and I never got into heroin because I loved pills so much. You know, they always talk about you have three loves of your life. You know, that was my first love. Legitimately, mm-hmm. I would do anything for it at the time. Um, I then started dating my childhood best friend. Um, she was bipolar, schizophrenic, alcoholic, which is a mouthful. Um, but she was all of those things. And um, she took her life after three years together. Um, we were engaged and um, she had enough and she took her life. I spiraled after that and I started drinking more and I was trying to die myself. I was starting to mix cocaine with Xanax with perks just to try to go. You know what I mean? I was going to pick a tree and drive into it. It was some really dark shit, man. Um, I finally found a rehab that I was going to be okay with. And it was in Los Angeles and it's called high sobriety. Um, It's a rehab that would help you change your relationship with cannabis to help you get off opiates. So for the first time in 10 years, I thought to myself, I would do that. You know, and I did it. I called them and talked to the guy for two hours and I flew out there and I spent five months in L.A. getting sober and I loved it. I went to AA meetings. I went to NA meetings. I was living my life. I made amazing friends and connections that I'm still friends with to this day, three and a half years later. Um, I haven't touched pills since I haven't had a pill since April 24, 2018. That's amazing. Um, But I did relapse with drinking eventually. Okay. Um, for nine months and I didn't alcoholically drink in those nine months, you know, I just stand up, you know, so I would like, you know, go to stand up shows and have a drink, but I wouldn't get drunk. You know, I would go see like Tom Segura or like Bert Kreischer and like have a few drinks before I go to the show. But like, I wasn't getting plastered because I wanted to be responsible because I was so indoctrinated with AA that so I couldn't. You were, you were able to, 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 well, first of all, there's so much to untangle in terms of what you just I know. Told. I That's told quite, you it was going to be a quick version. Amazing. But I'm I'm fascinated with what you just said, JD, that you were able to to actually know that limit and not completely relapse. Well, I don't know if, if that's a, the proper terminology. About, but... Okay, we're going to talk about stigmas, right, Luigi? Yeah. So, like, there's a huge stigma for me with counting days in AA. Now, I run AA meetings every single day out of my meeting center that I have. You know, my wife and I founded a nonprofit mental health meeting center in our town where we do AA, NA, trauma you know, all kinds of meetings out of here. And um, so like, I will pride myself on working the steps rigorously and being extremely honest with myself and Mm -hmm. always doing check-ins with myself. Um, But that was always the case. So when I had that relapse, I was still indoctrinated. I was still working the Mm -hmm. steps 
even every day because the steps aren't for alcoholics only. People need to get that out of their mind. Anybody can work the steps and have a better quality of life. Whatever is making watch this. You're not an alcoholic, right? Luigi, you're not an addict. You've never been to the program. No, what's, I've the, never, what's the first step though? What does everybody say the first step is? Uh that you have to admit that you have a problem. Yep. And it's it's technically it kind of is right, but there's a semicolon in the first step. It's that my life was unmanageable. There's a okay. semicolon after that, you know, and it's I'm powerless to alcohol, semicolon. My life become unmanageable. So you can do the steps on whatever makes your life unmanageable, you know, because if it's making your life unmanageable, then you should work the steps on it to figure out why it's making your life unmanageable, why you're showing up to work late, why you don't have money because of it, why you're getting arrested for it. If, whether it's a, a relationship with a drug or a relationship with a person, you can do the steps on it if you do them right and with somebody else. I understand. So I'm still working the steps, even though I'm drinking. I'm still doing my daily inventory every day, my step 10, like I'm supposed to, because I fully believe in the steps still to this day. So when I was drinking, I did in my limit and I did stay under that for a while until I woke up one day hungover for the first time in nine months. Okay. And I wasn't drinking every day because that would be alcoholically. I would just drink to celebrate here and there. But on February 28th, on a Friday, 2020, I drank alcoholically. I drank a whole bottle of Jack that night and I woke up hungover. Wow. Old hangover JD, the only other solution is drink more in the morning, get high in the morning, or never drink again. I chose option three because I thought, what's a better sober date than leap day? <laughs> you know, you only yeah. get one every four years. And then my yeah. wife quit, my wife quit drinking with me and we quit together. And then COVID hit two weeks later. So we're like, now we're really stuck in the house together and, yeah. uh, you know, and, but we do use medical marijuana. That's fine. Um, still to this day. And like I said, I'm a walking stigma. So we use that. She was diagnosed with MS in August and it works, you know, great for her MS. Sorry to hear that. I have a lot of that in, in my wife's family as well. So uh, it's really it's, rough. Yeah. yeah. Her sister yeah. has it too. And, you know. It's it's tough, but we you know we it's the hardest part is right now because it's early on in it. So it's figuring out which medicines work for her since there's no cure for MS and everybody's body is different. Even her sister, it's not a genetic disease. So when even if you're related and you get it, it could be completely different kinds of diseases. Yes. Yes. So and, that's what we're dealing with right now. And there's there's some that progressively get worse and some that just stay kind of stagnant and, and exactly. Yeah. So, let's so hope, yeah, I hope Christy has that one. Let's let's just, you know, yeah. yeah, we're working on it, man. You're working on it. So I started the podcast, um, you know, out of my meeting center in May of 2020, 2021. My wife and I started a nonprofit mental health meeting center where we do, like I said, the AA and the NA. Um, but I built a studio in here. And this is where I'm in right now. Mm -hmm. um, the John Johnson Memorial Studio is named after my best friend that died in a car accident in 2012. Um, and so I do my podcast where I talk to people all over the world about what their addiction was like and what their recovery looks like, what, why they got sober, why they stay sober, why they, you know, you know, how they do what they do. I find people on TikTok, I find people on Instagram and I find people in the Facebook groups, like how you and I met yep. and I'll, I'll be in groups of like addiction groups. Right. And I'll see so many posts like a crazy before and after. And I'll be in the comments saying, oh, my God, you're doing an amazing job. But if you ever want to tell your story, I have a platform for you. Please let me know and I'll DM you more information. Well, and a lot of the times they're like, yeah, oh, my God, I'd love to come on. And I'm finding people literally at a couple, 
I had two different people from Australia early on in September. Um, and then I just had a UK last week, a Scotland today, mm-hmm. you know, I have Canada yeah. tomorrow, you know, and I literally right now I'm, re- I'm releasing new episodes every single day. Um, the, ho- the holidays, um, the relapse rates spiked 33% during the holidays. And, and I'm sure COVID didn't help, right? Hundred thousand dollar, hundred thousand, hundred thousand overdoses deaths in America in one year during COVID. Oh, uh, I spoke to a police officer um, of a small town here in, in Quebec, uh, Canada, and the the suicides were about one or two per year. JD, pre COVID, pre COVID, COVID hit. They were at 15 to 20 per year. That's astounding. So it, it really is. I mean, the, the the battle that that we're fighting on on mental health issues and um, and everything else like that. And I could just imagine how that's amplified for addicts or working the the, the steps and, and that 30, to Yeah, and that 33% number is a bullshit number at the end of the day. That number is based on people that are being honest with their old rehabs to say if they relapsed or not. Mm-hmm. A lot of times they don't even answer their calls, you know, or they're too yeah, ashamed. Sure. To, they're too ashamed or ridden with guilt to admit the truth. So they just say, yeah, I didn't relapse yet. Or they relapse and they haven't answered anybody. No one's even confirmed anything. So that number is probably even higher than 40, to be honest. You know, it is through the roof. Without a doubt. Without um, a doubt. And it's also based on check-ins, so people checking into rehab again during the holiday spikes. So that's really what the numbers are based on. So it's not real true numbers, and the numbers are way higher than it seems. So sure. I did this back in September. September is National Recovery Month, and I thought, I'm going to raise awareness, and I'm going to put out a different story every single day. And I'm, I'm already backlogged 10 episodes, so I have a little bit of a head start. I have a week to interview as many people as I can to try to fill in the rest of this month. Mm-hmm. And I did it. You know, I did 32 actually in 30 days. That's um, incredible. I can't even do one a week. <laughs> and you and you said you checked out my show. So you know all my episodes are 45 minutes to two hours long. Yes. And yes. I find my guests. I record, I edit, and I promote. It's all one, one man show. One man show. So that's why we're going to get along. But <laughs> let me just... Let me just comment on, first of all, I, I listened to a few episodes and guys, anybody watching or listening to this podcast, please check out MJ's Progress, Not Perfection. I'm going to put this all in the show notes. So you have all the, the links to, to Spotify. But let, just to get back to the podcast, uh, JD, why I'm so amazed and I'm going to try. I, I've always been amazed and um, have so much respect for people that have the courage to put it out there, their dirty laundry and their struggles with addiction out there, uh, a lot like obviously like your your guests, but but to see the human struggle and the pain in their voice when they're recounting these stories, but at the same time lifting the human spirit when you see these success stories and you hear about these success stories. So my question to you is, and I've always again been fascinated. I can relate this to any part of life. Is Why is, again, it goes back, I think, to a stigma about addiction. Why is it that we kick someone while they're down? And I'm going to explain why my question, because I had a friend of mine that is recovering 
he just has a, an addictive personality. Okay, let's mm-hmm. let's put it. That. I don't want to get more into detail of that. No. It's probably people are watching, and never once. And I've been friends with him since we were children. Okay, uh, our kids are our our friends today. We're we're in our forties, late forties now, uh, and he's always been like a brother to me. But never once did it say to me. People will tell me, "Why are you still friends with him? The guy is a piece of, you know." But never once, JD, did I say. I'm going to turn my back on him. So my my question to you is, and I don't know if it's really open. I already know the answer to your question that you haven't even asked. Why is why are humans so put this stigma? I can't oh, I can't help him. I can't be associated with this piece of shit. Fear, this druggy, this alcoholic. Fear. It's fear, man. People fear what they don't understand or they don't personally know. You know, I always, you know, everyone's seen Home Alone, right? You know what yeah, I mean? At this sure. time of year, everyone's seen Home Alone. You know that movie in the beginning. He's afraid to go into the basement because he's afraid of the furnace. He's mm-hmm. a, he is not afraid of the furnace. He's afraid of his own imagination because he's afraid of that imagination of the furnace coming alive and attacking him like a monster. Yeah, That's what he was afraid of, the unknown. So people look at addicts and they look at people in addiction that are sober or not sober and the people that haven't been through it personally or had somebody close to them personally through it, they don't understand the why we do what we do. And when they don't understand that, they fear it. And when they fear it, they want to hate it. And they want to judge that fear to make themselves feel better about that fear. No one likes being afraid of something. And how you cope with being afraid of something is by justifying that fear, by ridiculing mm-hmm. that fear. And that's what happens. People don't understand the rewiring that your brain goes through when you get addicted to a substance. And I say a substance and not a drug because it doesn't have to be a drug. Whatever gives you a euphoric feeling or makes you take an escape from whatever you are or whoever you feel is going to be something that can be addicted to. Gamblers. People that, there's, Gambler. They have the shows on, the strange addictions. You know what I mean? People yeah. eating fucking hair. Or eating like their ashes of their husband and shit, you know, and they get addicted to it because it makes them feel good. You know, I do meetings out of here for families that have um, loved ones in addiction still and they don't understand it. Kind of like an Al-Anon, but not Mm -hmm. officially, but they can come and talk to other addicts. Al-Anon and and Naranon are for people to get together as groups of families hurting. My meetings are for families to come and talk to people like me and other people like me where they can talk to the people in recovery and they ask the questions. And one of the most powerful things happened the first time. This woman was in her, you know, she's probably in her 60s or her 50s. And she's like crying to me. I don't understand why my 34-year-old son can't stop shooting dope. It's been 15 years. And I just wow. don't understand it. And I, and, and, and I cry myself to sleep every night. And I'm afraid he's going to die. And I don't know why. And I said to her, you know... You know, you know that you know that boyfriend you had at one point that your parents hated and everyone hated and everyone told you how bad he was for you. And you said, you don't you don't know what he's like. You don't know what it's like when we're alone. Yes. You don't know how he makes me feel. Yeah, he does that. Yeah, he does this. But you don't know how he makes me feel inside because that's what happens when we're alone. She's like, of course. And I'm like, yeah, that's us. Except it's not with a human. It's with the drug. That that's the first love of my life. That was a relationship. I had a breakup song. I wrote a fucking letter. You know what I mean? I wrote a two page letter. And my breakup song was slow dancing in a burning room by John Mayer. 
Wow. You know, I, I needed to separate. And the thing is, I want it to be done. I want it to be sober. And that's why I'm still sober today, man. It's because I want it. People that, and they're going to subconsciously tell you, your buddy might even subconsciously tell you, I need to do this. Yes. I need to be clean. When he says that word need, it's not going to work that time. I'm going to tell you right now, maybe it'll work for a year, three years. But when that need goes away, he's going to get high. When you need to be sober, it's for the cops. It's for the courts. It's for the family. It's for the job. It's some for anybody else besides you. When you want it, when you want to be sober as bad as you want it to get high, that's when it works. When you think about your sobriety and how you're going to stay sober more than you think about how you, how you can get high and ruin your sobriety, that's when it works. You have to want it more than you want it to drug. And until you consciously want it and you start saying want and not need, it's not going to work. Simple as that. Very simple, but yet so powerful, right? Yeah. There's um, two words. You need air. You need water. You need food. You have to want this shit, man. Yeah. And until you want it, keep getting high. <laughs> Be safe about it. So on that same, uh, so on that same token, what would you say to people, the ones that that won't even bother helping, or to the the people? And I've seen this as well, very personal and very close to me. Is like, oh, I'm gonna change him or her. Yes, he's a drug addict, but I could change him. He's gonna change for me. It's admirable. It's admirable. It never know, works. It, it 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 works sometimes. I've seen it work, you know, I've seen it work. Sometimes that kind of connection can be powerful. Sometimes two humans can have a connection that's greater than anything, you know, and yeah. you don't need a drug because you have such a great connection with your partner that you feel like that is your drug and you feel like that person fulfills you in every way that you can't get from drug anyway. That's how I feel now. I'm very fulfilled in my relationship. My mm -hmm. wife and I, we communicate everything. We are an open book. We don't not tell each other anything. You know, during COVID, we spent 24 hours a day together and it wasn't enough for me. I love being with my wife. I can be exactly who I am disgustingly alone as I am with her. And that's how I know she's the one. You know yeah. what I mean? It doesn't it doesn't make me feel I don't feel uncomfortable around her. I don't feel like I'm on edge. I always see like the TV shows, like how I met your mother when Barney wouldn't fart in front of, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm like, come on, man. How are you in love? How? How are you he in love? You know, just know the real you. Yeah. yeah, you know, and you do the right thing. You get separate blankets. That's what we did. My wife's got her blanket. I got mine. No Dutch <laughs> ovens for my baby. Uh, <laughs> but it's that kind of shit, man. Um, you know, that's it, there's always going to be stigmas. People are going to be afraid of everything. You're afraid of that crack addict. You're afraid of that meth head. You're afraid of that guy because you don't understand where his abscesses came from. You don't understand why he can sit on the street for eight hours and wait to get high. You don't understand how he can sit in Kensington and Philly in the open air market and just be high as fuck all day long in that open air market and live there homeless and be okay with it. And when you don't understand that, you're afraid of it. Yeah. And you have to judge that to make your fears go away. That's how you make a fear go away is you make fun of that fear, right? Like Kevin did mm -hmm. in Home Alone. He made fun yeah. of the furnace. He's like, I'm not afraid of you. And then he made fun of it. And then he wasn't afraid of it. So you make fun of the addicts. You post the pictures of the addicts strung out on the streets going, look at this piece of shit. You yeah. make fun of us. You talk about us to other people, but you won't say it to our faces, especially the ones in recovery, because you're going to have to hear a lot of shit from us. And we're not going to hold back about how we feel, especially the ones that are living out loud in recovery like That's I am. Sure. I am not going to hold my shit back, man. I don't and I won't. 
Uh, that 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 will cause cancer. That kind of shit causes cancer, bro. When you hold that shit in. Oh, absolutely. I I, sh- I, I, I believe that. I air everything because it's easier that way. You ask me why I can do that or how I can do that. I am very candid on my show, as you've heard, and mm-hmm. it's because if I'm not candid, I could just destroy somebody's life. Somebody, people are listening to my show that are getting sober listening to my show. They're messaging me that they're sober because of my show. And they're watching and binge watching these episodes to stay sober. Now, if I fall inconsistent or if I stop being honest with my audience, they stop trusting me. And then they stop trusting what they've heard from me. And that's not that shouldn't be the point. Right. You know, I I met a guy early in sobriety that changed the way I looked at a lot of things. You know, he always said we have the choice today, dude. We have the choice not to drink. We have the choice not to use. But as soon as we use, we lose that choice. And that yeah. always stuck with me. He relapsed at 19 months when he was my house manager. And I was devastated because I had all this knowledge from him. And I said to my sponsor, you know, what do I do? Like, do I just like write off everything he's ever told me? He's like, no, everything no, he told you, you need. He, he stopped listening to himself. So Incredible. just be, if I relapse and if I go off or I stop, I just means I stopped listening to me. Yeah. You can still listen to all the other things you learned from me because they kept me sober that day. All I have is today. I've been sober almost two years, but all I have is today, bro. So how do you how do you deal with that? Now that you mentioned that, how do you deal with that? Because now, whether you want to believe it or not, you have a huge pressure on your back. How do you deal with that? Knowing that that I work people better under that way, man. I need that. I, I, I I'm a pressure kind of like I was that person like you wait till the last minute to do something because you work better that way, mm-hmm. you know. And that kind of that kind of pressure, it's not the kind of pressure you think it is though. It's not like pressure yeah. to perform a task. It's it's just be me constantly. It's not hard for me to just be an open book. It's not. Well, it's it's harder for me to lie. Yeah. It's harder for me to like dance around all these things and can construct all these things to make myself sound better, you know, but I'd rather just tell you I'm a piece of shit sometimes and be honest about it because then you can't say that I never said that. Yeah, for sure. But what I meant is like that it's a huge responsibility now that when you, and and I know they're completely fulfilling when you get those messages, but man, your shoulders must be, have a little bit of weight on them. Yeah, some people no. have relapsed. I know two girls that have been on my show that have relapsed after they did their interviews. And they told me they relapsed. You know, they messaged me about their relapse. One, I'm trying to actually help get back into a rehab. Um, the other one, she's already back into a rehab, um, into a sober living and already a couple months sober again. Um, it People make their choices, man. And that's it. Yeah. I, I can't control you. I can't control my wife. I can't control anybody. The day I learned that I can't control anybody except for what I'm doing is the day I started getting a lot more peace. The day I learned how to accept things as they were and not as they are and just move on from them, it, I also gained peace. It's acceptance that you know I've gained from that, but it's honesty is a lot of things that like I keep with myself at all times to like just stay grounded. And it's knowing that I can't control what like I have a sponsee who just had six months sober for the first time in his life the other day and he's doing great just had his fifth kid and it was the only kid he got to see sober being born i was bawling like a you know little (laughs) like little girl because his mom or his you know his mother-in-law and his wife and him were just thanking me over and over and i just felt so fulfilled and it's that kind of shit that keeps me going you know i'm the bad guy in a lot of people's stories dude 
you know, my my ex fiance, you know, her family that blamed me for her suicide. I'm the bad guy in their story for the rest of their life, but I'm the good guy in his story. Hmm. That's what I'm always going to be a bad guy in some people's stories. I can't help how you feel about me. I am just genuinely me. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be somebody else. I'm going to be very raw and very real. Like I said, you know, I'm always going to just be honest because I don't want to have to lie anymore. That was the old me in my 20s when I did pills every day. I'm tired of lying. dude. Aren't we all, eh, though? But I'm sure everybody, whether addicts or not, that we're probably the bad in someone's story. When you really look at your entire life, so I love the way you said that, right? You yeah. could be you could be the 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 bad guy in somebody's movie of their life, but yet you could be a hero, like you are. To so many people, absolutely, it's, that you're it's doing that, right now. It's that mindset, dude. There's always the opposite side of the coin. There's always the positive to the negative. Somebody's death can be, you know, oh my god, this is horrible. They're gone, or it can be a beautiful thing that they're not in pain anymore. Even birth, you can say. Oh my God, this is amazing. Or you can say, Oh my God, how the fuck are we going to afford college? <laughs> Any way you look at something, yeah. it's about your perspective. You know, a couple of days in the rehab, I learned that happiness is not a choice. I mean, happiness is a choice and not something that you feel. You know, you have the choice to be happy every single day. You wake up and you're in Quebec and you're like, Oh shit, it's snowing again. I'm sure you said that, right? Every day. <laughs> so it's, you, it's actually snowing today. <laughs> you have that choice, bro. You have that choice to say, okay, the snow is going to make my day bad because, or you have that choice to wake up and say, the snow is going to help my day because I can take my time. I can do this. I can do that now. I don't have to do this. It's a matter of how you want to look at things. Absolutely. So if you want to take that choice and be negative and you get out of bed with that negative mindset about the snow, you're brushing your teeth negative. You're taking your piss negative. You're walking out the door with that mindset. You're walking into work with that mindset. But if you take that mindset of like, ah, oh, it is what it is, and you can't control the fucking weather because none of us can, especially in your great white it's, north. It's no fucking way. <laughs> I've been to Quebec. I love your city, bro. I've been to old Quebec. I think it's a beautiful city. I loved it up there. The next um, time you come here. I will definitely well, let you know. Um, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, but it's it's that choice. It's that power of that choice of happiness. I wasn't. I was 31 years old when I learned that happiness wasn't a feeling. It was a choice. I, I wish that. I would have learned that shit when I was younger. Yeah. Now my seven year old knows it. When he says he doesn't feel happy, I tell him that's that's not what it is, bro. Yeah, but you know what though, uh, GD, if we could tell. Uh, the younger versions of ourselves, then no I one would have, have any problems. Exactly. No, I, I, wouldn't I wouldn't have listened to my, I wouldn't have, I'm like, shut up, old man. I'll exactly. give to you. Exactly. You know, I, have listened. My, <laughs> I needed to learn for myself. I needed to make my mistakes. You know, I can't take back my mistakes and I'm not no. going to. And I, I have apologized for things that I've done. And I live amends to a lot of people because mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that I can't apologize for. But all I can do is just, continue to try to be a good person and help people and show that I am a different person and I have changed. Is that part of the process as well, right? Making amends with people that you hurt? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's a step nine, um, step eight and nine. So like step four is writing down any resentments that you had in your life mm -hmm. um, against somebody else and yourself. 75% um, of my resentments were against myself, honestly. Um, which may do in a step eight really easily because step eight was writing down that list of apologies you need to make. So I went right to that list of things that I hated myself for and started making that list. Right. Step nine is actually having step nine is being willing to make amends. It's not there's some that you shouldn't make. 
there's some conversations that you shouldn't have because they'll be detrimental to yourself or that person. There's some okay. things that are okay with being left unsaid. As long as you're willing to make the amends and you know that you need to live it regardless, that's what's really important. So okay. there's some amends that I won't make that I'm not ready to, and I don't know if I'll ever be ready to, but I'm always going to continue to try to do the right thing and live my life as honest as possible, you know? Um, what, one thing that um, he, I think is another misconception, and I think you you uh, answered it, and I'd love to for you to to further talk about this is that this misconception and again correct me if i'm wrong that uh oh this addict must have come back from you know from from a really bad upbringing but from all accounts that you told me you came from a loving family still loving great, great parents still loving great relationships with your siblings <coughs> but yet look what it took it took that little trigger at 12 years old where right your your cerebral cortex is not even developed that you can't even make proper decisions saying you at an early age, and I can't even phantom that. My son is 12 years old, right? Imagine that, okay? So that's why it hit me really when you told me right away, boom, right off the, the top. Yeah. So you put that, oh, this makes me feel better, makes me forget about losing my 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 friend. Let me do this again. So it's going to help me with my future problems. So what, again, comment on that misconception of you don't necessarily need to come from a, or have a horrible upbringing or trauma in your in your youth i talk to a lot of people i've had you know as of right now i think i have 78 episodes out you know what i mean um and another you know 15 recorded and ready to upload kind of mm -hmm. thing and i it's definitely a healthy mix of trauma and people like me you know, I was also, remember, the first one through the gate in my family. I'm the oldest of three, so I was independent. You know, my mm -hmm. parents could put me down in front of a TV, watch DuckTales for hours, and not hear a peep <laughs> out of me, you know? Um, and that's how I was, and I was always very independent. So, like, my brother was the middle child eventually, and he, full on middle child syndrome, needs the attention and seeks it, and he has always sought it since he was born. And he knows that. We've talked about it. And um, my sister was the baby that just didn't need it, but got all the attention kind of thing. Mm -hmm. She was the only girl in the baby. So I wasn't being paid attention to anymore by the time I was nine. My mom just had her little girl for the first time. And, you know, this is still the 90s. There's no internet to look up shit to be a mom. My, mom, my parents had me at 23, a year into being married, and do, did their best that they ever could. My dad worked three jobs at one point to make sure my mom didn't have to go to work and she could stay home with me and raise me. You know, wow. and they worked their asses off to make sure I had a great life. We went to Disney World seven times as a family before I was like 12 years old, dude. Drove to Montana and back, drove to Quebec and back, you know, drove to everywhere. Like I've been to 40 states with my family, you know, wow. and Canada. That trip, that trip that I went to old Quebec, we went to the Baseball Hall of Fame first. And then we went to Niagara Falls. Okay. Yeah. And then we went to Niagara Falls. And then we shot over to Toronto to hit the Hockey Hall of Fame because mm -hmm. hockey is my sport, you know. I see that Bruins ship back there, I think. Is that, yes, uh, man, yes, I'm a Flyers yeah. fan. I lived in Massachusetts. Man, oh, but I, did live, I lived in Massachusetts when the Flyers came back from 3-0 down and came back in that playoff oh, series and won 4-3. I was with all my Bruins fans when that I'm shit not, happened. It's okay. I'm not talking about that. I'm going to talk the year after when we <laughs> swept you on the way to win the Stanley Cup. I don't remember that. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, so hockey is a big deal to me. That's my favorite sport, you know, out of any sport. 
hockey is always first for me. So I had to go to the Hockey Hall of Fame and touch the sure. Stanley Cup. It was, you know, and the Stanley Cup was there. So I got to do that. And then Beautiful we, building, eh? Oh, my God. I loved cool. it. You know, it, this was 95, right? This was around the time Gretzky's shit wasn't even in there yet, bro. Oh, my You know, God. that's how long ago I was there. Yeah. They, You know, his, it wasn't even in there yet. And his pucks were, you know, they had some of his pucks for, you know, he had already broken records yeah. by then. Um, he was my favorite growing up, obviously, the way I grew up, even even though I was born and then two weeks later he beat us in the Stanley Cup. You know, he's still one of my favorite players of all time. Wow, There's yeah, nothing like watching his highlight reels. I don't care what anyone says about net sizes and pad sizes. Speed. They can take those arguments and show them their fucking dick because there were so <laughs> many other players that were playing that same time that weren't scoring like him. Exactly. Mike Bossy, that was it. That was the only person on the Islanders that was scoring at the rate Gretzky was scoring at was Mike Boss. Yes. yes. That's it. So you, yeah. you can miss me with that because, <laughs> yeah, the pads were the same size for all those players for all exactly. those years. Exactly. You know, and, look at Jacques Plant. I'm sure you love Jacques Plant. You know, well, one of the I, greatest goalies of all of time. He invented wearing the mask because he yeah. broke his nose 17 times or yeah. whatever. How many, I don't know how many stitches he got. Well, you know, um, the, you know what happened with that, right? Like. Yeah. He would only wear the mask during practice. Yeah. And then they would make him take it off for the games. And then he told his team, like, no, I have to wear it this game. And then they won. And then it's superstition. They won like 19 games in a row with him wearing a mask. Crazy. And then they're like, all right, always keep the mask on. <laughs> there were different, different breed of hockey players back oh. then, man. Just to just pff, well, wow. he he mentored, you know, one of our Bernie Perrant. Bernie Perrant, yeah. you know, mentored under Jacques. Yeah. And so, like, that's what I'm saying. I'm obsessed with hockey and the history of hockey. Same here, um, so I had to go to the Hall of Fame. You know, I was already that obsessed when I was a little kid. And so we hit that. And then we did, um, was it Quebec and then Montreal or Montreal, then Quebec? I can't remember. I think it was Montreal. Then we saw so, Phillies. We saw a Phillies Expos game. And this is when Moise Salou, you know what I mean? Back, oh, you know, man, back yeah. in the day, bro. And then we, when we hit, you know, old Quebec City and the cobblestone and that all beautiful thing. And then we drove back. That's you know, awesome. and so I, you know, my family upbringing was amazing, and we're still really close to this day. I talk to my dad almost every other day, if not every day, you know, at least in text messages. Hey, did you watch mm-hmm. Curb last night? And then we'll call yeah. each other and talk about Curb enthusiasm for an hour, you know, and we're best friends. My dad and I are best friends. We're the same person. You know, I was a drug addict and he wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. he was addicted to work. That was the difference. He's addicted to work. And so, you know, he isn't, he has addictive personality. It's just that he didn't find drugs. He didn't escape in drugs. He escaped in work. Well, that's what I was going to ask you is, I guess you just asked, asked, you answered it indirectly is that I've always been fascinated as well with people with addictive personalities, but don't go down the road of actually forming an addiction to a substance. I'm addicted to doing this. Think about it. If I'm yeah. putting out episodes daily and doing everything, I get a high off of it. I get a high off those numbers. You know, Me- you you check your YouTube studio numbers and you're like, oh shit, when that bounce up. Yeah. You know, I'm dropping shorts now, the YouTube shorts. Yeah. And they're, they're huge bumps. All of a sudden, I'll get 300 more viewers in 10 minutes, you know, yeah, but, for those but, short 15 second clips. But the thing and- is that that won't kill you or potentially kill you, right? That's exactly. what I'm saying is that. Is that where you find the line between the two? It's right? a it's a it's a healthy thing to do. This is my these are my meetings. You know, an AA meeting is two alcoholics having a conversation. That's it. That's what an AA meeting is, according to the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. What's well, right? So it's recovery. You're doing this podcast as part of your recovery as well. 
it's part of my recovery. It's how I stay sober all the time, you know, because I'm just building up our new place, right? Our mental health place. We don't have people at meetings every day. We're we're in the you know woods in the mountains in PA, you know. So mm-hmm. like, there's a college in our town that's most of our population. So those kids don't want to come here, you know. Yeah. So like, I'm trying to build a community around recovery that doesn't exist yet. So mm-hmm. sometimes I don't have anybody that comes to meetings. Sometimes I have one or two. Sometimes there's ten. You know, it's always going to be different. But on the days when no one comes, and I sit down and I talk to somebody from scotland for an hour about them being an alcoholic i have an amazing connection and we we resonate with each other and we relate the entire time we laugh you've heard my episodes so you hear us laughing man yeah we we find ways to laugh at our pain you know i did comedy and i remember the last month i'm doing stand-up um before i got sober i was so broken you know i would get up on stage and i was basically sharing like i was at a meeting without knowing it because I, if I knew my family wasn't in the crowd to watch me that night and it was just like a bullshit set and I was just mm-hmm. working out something, I would just get up there and do crowd work. And what I would do is I would grab the mic and be like, I'm JD and I'm an addict. I'm in the wrong room again. Shit. <laughs> and then I would just go into like how my day was. And I didn't know that I was basically sharing like I would eventually like I do in AA meetings and talking about how my day is and why it's gone to shit or why it's good. And I find a lot of light in darkness, almost like that positive negative thing, right? Yeah. That we talked about. There's always going to be, but there's always going to be that light. There's always that joke that you can't tell because it's too soon. Because, but it is a joke. There is the funny. There is always a funny. And you have to look for it. And once you find it, it's beautiful because when you can laugh at your pain and you can laugh at your trauma and what caused you to have trauma, that's when you start taking control again. That's when you start accepting things again. You know, do you know Ryan Sickler? He's a uh, comedian. No. He has a podcast called The Honeydew. Um, no. He's a comedian in L.A. Um, and his podcast is amazing. It's out every Tuesday on YouTube. And okay. um, he interviews different comedians about in the highlights, the lowlights. That's like his tagline. We're going to highlight the lowlights. And they talk about that kind of stuff, like uh, trauma, but they find ways to laugh at it. And his laugh is like this really high-pitched dolphin infection laugh. So you just listen to him and you laugh with him. You know who Burt Kreischer is? The machine? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I have him my wall too. I'm a big fan of Burt and Tom. And um, that's how I got into podcasting was Two Bears, One Cave. They did their first episode together. And that was the first podcast I ever watched. Okay. And then I was hooked. You know, I was like hooked to podcasts ever since then. Um, so Burt was doing the Burtcast and he had Sickler on. And they were talking about Honeydew. And Ryan was talking about his grandmother dying in his arms and he was telling the story and he was laughing hysterically by the end of it with the situation and how it unfolded and how like just funny it was just like looking back 30 years ago in the moment. It's not funny, but looking back, him and Bert couldn't stop laughing like they were like hyenas. Yeah, like when you're in the, when you're in the moment, you're not going to find it funny, obviously. And and, but... and it's a beautiful thing. And they talked about it. he started almost tearing up about how beautiful it was the fact that he could laugh now, because that doesn't have control. You you know my past can't control me if I'm laughing at it. You know if I'm talking about my past the way I talk about it on my show, I have control over my story. I have control over my past, and Absolutely. it doesn't control me anymore. It's uh, it's funny that you said that is, uh, you know, this is my second podcast. I did one a few years ago with with a fellow comedian friend of mine. And um, I started this the second one, this one, Agree to Disagree, 
at the 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 onset of the um the pandemic and let me tell you jd um my mental health took a beating okay uh i'm a very sociable person i love being out so uh it was it was i'm not gonna lie and, and i've shared this honestly this podcast i'm not gonna say saved my life but it gave it, you a new life oh fuck man let me tell you knowing that you know when usually thursday nights or some some weeks i was doing two shows a week and knowing that i'm gonna speak to somebody learn something new speak to another interesting character let me tell you man what it did for my mental health and 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 this is podcast look i have shivers just saying it i don't know why it's just podcasting it's nothing it's two guys here having a, having a conversation having a conversation getting to know each other yeah but your story is just it's just unbelievable right to especially to someone that hasn't lived with anybody or been friends with you know addicts and but and, and i'm sure you could tell me god knows what you can what you could tell me in the stories but you know what i've always wondered is why why is there such a high relapse rate in addicts why can't I don't know if you share statistics or we're like, what is this? <laughs> it's not, I don't like statistics that much. Well, I love numbers, but statistics when it comes with addiction are so skewed that I don't like to look at them. It's mm -hmm. straight up. The only statistic I'll look at is did he die or did he not? Okay. You know, besides that, the statistics, it's like this company's getting paid this to say this. Look at Purdue and what the, what the shit they did with the pharmaceutical companies with Dope yeah. Stick on that show on Hulu. You yeah. know, that's a full, you know, outline of what Purdue did to lie. You know, when you go to hospital, there's a scale of one to 10 that you have to tell the doctor that's Purdue. Purdue implemented that in the late 90s so that doctors could push oxy on you. That's the reason that that scale exists with yeah. a pain level is because of Purdue Pharma. So like now I got on a rant on them and I forgot your original <laughs> question. <laughs> no, it's it just, uh, you know, why is there such a high relapse? High rate? relapse is because yeah. people aren't ready. People are getting pushed into sobriety because they have to. Simple as like that. Like I said, you know, you know, if I if your kid and you're like, no, you have to do this, you have to do this, and then now he needs it and he needs it because he has to. Until they want it, it's not going to work. And when goes, you need goes it, goes back to what you said before, right? Yeah, want and that's need, what yeah. I, yeah, and that's what it comes down to is a lot of people are in rehab because they're in court, you know, and they got arrested too many times. They're in rehab because, you know, their family said, we're going to leave you if you don't go to rehab. The parents said, we're going to kick you the fuck out if you don't go mm -hmm. to rehab. There's a lot of that. And when that happens, when you get out, you get high again because you have nothing really to keep you sober. And I want it. I consciously don't want to get high. If I wanted to get high, I would have already gotten high by now when my wife got diagnosed yeah. and we were devastated, you know, and we've gone through some hard times since then with her pain and you know not knowing shit man i got dosed with fentanyl in june at the hospital unknowingly against my will you know so what happened How did that happen? <clears throat> okay so when you're addicted to pills like i am or i was um you withdraw a lot right mm -hmm. you, unless you have constant pills to put in your body you're in withdrawal a lot. And I would withdraw almost every single day until I got high again. Everyone's withdrawals look different. Mine look like restless legs that wouldn't stop. And I mean, like I just ran 25 miles, wouldn't stop. Wow. Um, you know, 50 kilometers, whatever you want to call it, whatever you guys yeah. call it. Um, but <laughs> kilometers. I, you know, <laughs> kilometers. So, so, you know, um, but it restless leg syndrome, that was a bitch for me. And it was unbearable. 
The other thing too was a stomach pain that I got. It's flu-like symptoms, but you're not having the flu. Anyone that's seen Requiem for a Dream and seen him in the fetal position, that's a very accurate representation of how you feel in the mornings when you wake up. That's that initial pain. Yeah. Sometimes when... you don't shift for a week. Um, sometimes it's two weeks. I've heard people go over a month without taking a shit um, because you get so constipated from the pills and or the opiates or the heroin or whatever you're doing opiate-wise. Sometimes I would forget to pee. Huh. It would be like, the, ironically, that will kill you. Constipation. Fuck. Yeah, it's actually, incredible. you know what's crazy is the only time I was ever afraid to die in addiction was when I was taking my shit. Um, that was the only time I ever feared death. Um, everyone knows Elvis died on the toilet, but not everybody yeah. knows Elvis died on the toilet from constipation from an opiate addiction. And I never wanted to be the fat fuck that died on the toilet from an opiate addiction. I'm sorry. I'm no, you can laugh. I, I call it. No, yeah, that's the whole point. I, I, you know, I use humor with my weight. That's when I did that on stage too. The first time I got on stage, I grabbed the stool and I shook it around and I said, good thing I only got three minutes. Anything more than that, I would need to sit down. That thing's not holding me. You know, that was my opening line the first time I ever walked on stage in Philly, man. So, like, I, I, I am okay with my weight. I know how big I am. I'm not a small guy. So, you know, I was a Chris Farley in addiction. I was a very heavy drug. I was a very heavy guy. Okay. Um, and I wasn't eating a lot. I was eating Reese's. You know, my diet was the gas station diet because yeah. I had a gas card through work. And I, I was able to pay for my, you know, food through the gas card. Pay, buy my cigarettes with the gas card. Drive two hours four times a week there and back to get my pills. I had to drive two hours for the last wow. three years of my addiction. I would drive two hours, pick up my pills and drive two hours back four times a week for three years. That's nuts. That's <laughs> I would nuts. anyway, going back to um, my gallbladder. Um, I, I threw up a lot of bile in nine and a half years. And when you throw up as much bile as I did, because I wasn't throwing up food, I wasn't eating. I was throwing up bile. Okay. My gallbladder stopped functioning and started shutting down on me. And I didn't know any of this. Wow. Um, my gallbladder started giving me really bad issues two years sober. Like, I'm talking, like, when COVID hit, I started getting these really bad stomach pains. And and all these things were happening to my body. And we didn't know if it was COVID. We didn't know, what was, we didn't know if it was a tumor. They said mm -hmm. it might have been an adrenal gland tumor because my heart rate was jumping so much. Um, they know what was going on with me. Um, and they couldn't get me in for these testing because of COVID. It took me like nine months to get an endoscopy. <clears throat> Finally, when I got an endoscopy, they saw my gallbladder was 5% functioning. And 5%. they, yeah, they, that's got to go. I said, yeah. And then they also saw I, I'm missing like 10% of my stomach lining. Okay. In that area of the gallbladder. Because when the gallbladder stopped functioning, which is where the bile is stored, it started eating away from the tissue. So now I permanently have tissue missing. So if I cough really hard, I have a nerve that rubs against the back of my stomach that hurts like a motherfucker. And wow. I'm always going to have that. Um, that's another reason why I don't smoke weed anymore um, is because I cough. I just use little capsules and I take up my blood mm -hmm. pressure medicine because um, I'm afraid of coughing too much. And I have um, ongoing costochondritis in this rib over here from coughing so much um so and i'm a cigarette smoker you know and i haven't quit that yet and it's because i don't want to <laughs> like yeah. we said it's as simple as that my grandmothers you know they're like come on we want you to stop smoking it's I'm like i'm not ready because i don't want it because i still love it 
Yeah. When I'm ready, I will quit because I want it and it'll work right away. I'm not playing this cat and mouse game of I'm going to do it to make you happy. I'm 35 years old. If you're not happy with me because I smoke cigarettes. Get the fuck over it. <laughs> I quit pills. I quit alcohol. <laughs> Give me a break. I don't I love do so much. You know, I love, I love, I love that what you said before that we're we're laughing now and you said to find the light in any darkness. And mm-hmm. and I'm gonna leave it with this. And uh, I, were you a Sopranos fan? course i'm from new jersey you're from new jersey i was exactly. 13 i was 12 years old when that show came out and my dad and i watched it every sunday night together without missing a beat and then i would call my italian best friend after it ended and we would talk <laughs> about it until 11 o'clock at night when it was time for the phones to go off and go to bed same, same year so why i bring up sopranos and you're gonna know right away which episode i'm gonna go to probably next to the the meadows when they get stuck when paulie and and uh, chrissy get stuck in the woods the second best, or if not the best episode, episode ever, yeah. is the intervention with the, um Christopher Christopher's drug intervention when they show up at his apartment. Mm-hmm. JD, I never ever, and and I don't, I'm not making light of it, obviously, because you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Yep. How fucking absolutely hilarious! Yep, that uh, Christopher's is. addiction was very, very, you know, something that I've watched closely looking back on Sopranos. Okay. Um, yeah, because sure. he was functioning as, you know, as an addict, he was functioning for his uncle. He mm-hmm. was showing up still, sometimes really too high to do something, right? You know, with like that suit thing that wasn't even for him. It was with that dude that they were fucking around. It was a good thing he yeah. wasn't there and he got too high and he missed and he, you know, so there was times that, you know, being high saved him. Yeah. And that's what happens when you're in addiction is sometimes being high saved you from being in a situation you couldn't have been in. And would have been really bad for you. And then you think, well, I can keep doing this because this just saved me from that. Yeah. So, best, you know, but yeah, the Christopher addiction. What is Best it? line ever. You killed the fucking dog. You killed the fucking dog, Chrissy. <laughs> and he fucking sat on he slept yes, on it, right? Yes, when he slept yes. on it. Yeah. <laughs> Adrian's dog. And then he fucking killed her. Spoiler alert, people. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to freaking cry. <laughs> um. I, I, I did you watch the movie? How did you feel about the movie? I haven't seen it, JD, because I I heard so much about it, and I don't think I could bring myself to watch it. I can help you watch it just by telling you this, okay? Mm-hmm. Go into it knowing it's the story of Dickie Moldasani and not the story of Tony Soprano. Yes, yeah. The follow up will be about Tony's son, Tony's son, you know, James Gandolfini's son being Tony. Yeah, because they just gave him a five year deal. Um, HBO, mm. after that movie came out, they said to David Chase, five-year exclusive rights on anything you're writing. So that means they're in the works with something else now. Interesting. So if you go into it, because like I, I was upset when I watched it because it wasn't enough young Tony for me. Mm-hmm. But you have to go into it with the mindset of this is the story of Dicky Modasani, the person who took Tony under his wing. Okay. And that, when you watch it with that mindset, like that mindset we talked about. It's when you watch it for some other reason, then you're yeah. going to appreciate it. It's like Lost, right? Did you watch yeah. Lost? No, I never did. I never okay. got it. No, never got People it hated the ending yes. that watched it every single week for six years. I heard. People loved the ending that binge watched it in a month. You know, yeah, you didn't sure. make me wait six years for that ending. <laughs> you know, so it, it's it's about how you perceive it going into yeah. it. When, when you put these expectations up to here, you're always going to be disappointed, you know. Yeah, what, what's that expression from Best Buy that we used? To, I worked at Best Buy for a decade. It was um, 
Uh, uh, under undersell over uh, under under promise over deliver. Yes, yeah. Under promise over sales, deliver. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. and it comes. I do that with anything in life now. Like I, I don't that. tell everybody I'm going to keep you sober for the rest of your life. I'm going to tell you I'm going to keep you sober for today. It's up to you to show up tomorrow for me to keep you sober. Then. I love it. I love yeah. it. And on that note, um, I hope everyone listening and uh, whoever sees this show or listens to it on on as a podcast. Uh, you could take away from from if you're struggling with addiction that you took away something from this episode. Um, GD, tell us where you could be found on social media and everywhere. I'm going to put it all in the show notes, of course, but yeah. if you could just shit it out there. All right, let's see. Let's start at Facebook. I'm under JD Dilks, D as in David, I, L as in Larry, KS, or MJ's Progress, Not Perfection, M as in Mary, J is my name. My wife is Mikey, so it's MJ's. Okay. Um, that's also in my podcast. Um, you can find also me on Instagram, jd.dilks and MJ's Progress Not Perfection. I post promo clips. A lot of the times, my favorite thing is finding the right song for the right clip. And I, yeah. I obsess over it. And I spend hours finding the right song sometimes. It's crazy. Um, and then also, I'm really big on TikTok. Um, and I post on TikTok a lot. Okay. I find And if you want to be on the show, you know what I mean? If you are in recovery and you want to tell your story, just DM me on one of those platforms. You can awesome. find me. And I and Luigi knows I answer. I mean, yep. yeah, your name is Costanza, and I love Seinfeld. So I was going to answer you anyway, bro. You could have been yelling at me. I didn't say, hey, Costanza. And either way, I was going to respond. I got a famous <laughs> name, bro. I got a famous name, man. That's, and my son's that's... obsessed with Mario and Luigi. Either way, I had to talk oh to God. you. You know, you, you're going to tell him tomorrow, right? You're going to tell yeah, him. Yeah, he's asleep right now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah you're going to tell him. So my, my boys went to bed too. Um, yeah, I made a mistake. Honestly, when I look back at it now, and, and Joe Rogan always told me, and I love Joe Rogan, obviously, uh, big fan of his. And he always says, you know, when you're doing something, just use your name. Yeah. And I should have called it just the Costanza experience or the Costanza. <laughs> oh, we got a lot I, of hits, probably. Think about it. And yeah. uh, JD, yep. do you, honestly, I, I have that regret. And now I can't rebrand them like 46 episodes in. I mean, you can start. and you can't. Well, you can and you can't. You know what I mean? Your audience is going to be still following regardless if you change your name. Which, speaking of that, YouTube, you can find me under NJ's Progress Not Perfection. I have um, 70, 75 full-length episodes up. Plus, awesome. I have... I'm starting to upload memorable moments every single day. Mm -hmm. I've been going back into old episodes and pulling my favorite clips from those episodes awesome. and doing under 10 minute little clips. Yeah, and smart. then I'm also posting 15 second and under little shorts of little promos too. You're going to find a lot of that under playlists on my page on MJ's progress, not perfection. I'm on Spotify. I'm on Spotify video now where I'm just posting clips on Spotify video. Cool. Um, they invited me into there because I was uploading so much. Mm -hmm. Um, you can find me on Apple, Google, Facebook podcasts, all of them except for like, you know, the Amazon podcast. I'm never going to get into. I curse way too much. <laughs> They're never going to let me in there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Same here. Trust me. I was actually good tonight. Um, listen, JD, thank you so much. I uh, truly appreciate you being on, but I also truly appreciate you uh, being so frank and sharing your story. Um, I think the world needs a lot more JDs. To I have a lot more you. stories. You ever want me on again? I have a lot more stories. I, for I you. will trust me, and uh, I wish you honestly nothing but but success and continued recovery. And uh, let better. me tell you, I'm 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 glad that you 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 beat it, man. I'm glad that you're still around to tell your story. Hey, man, I didn't beat anything. I'm still working at it every day. Yeah. And like an old old timer always tells me, "I'm gonna leave you with this." He goes, "I never quit drugs. I haven't touched drugs in thirty some years." I never quit them. I just stopped starting. I don't know how mm. to quit. I just know how to stop starting something. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you again. Stay stay on. We'll chat off air. Yeah. And uh, so thanks everyone for tuning in and uh, we'll see you next week. I think, yes, we got one more before the Christmas break. So wishing everyone a great evening. Be safe and love each other and be good to each other. Bye everyone. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Agree to Disagree show. Make sure you like, subscribe, and tell all your friends about it. Until next time.